So first of all, I would like to thank the organizers of this conference for selecting our panel. And I would like to thank Dr. Brenche for making this panel possible. It is an honor to present this paper about engaged phenomenology and neurology beyond the brain to you. I would like to start with a very big disclaimer. I am not a philosopher and I'm just a medical doctor. And although I have a PhD title, I have absolutely no formal education whatsoever in philosophy. Over the last 18 months, through my conversations with Dr. Brencho, I've come to realize that there is something fundamental missing in my medical education, and maybe even in medical education in general. I hope you will therefore forgive my philosophical shortcomings and will allow me to be here as an amateur in the true sense of the word someone who deeply appreciates this discipline of philosophy and who is curious about learning more about it. What I want to share with you today is my view as a physician of what phenomenology could bring to the field of neurology. I will focus on epilepsy since this is a condition that I have studied for over 10 years now and on which phenomenology has really helped me to shed new light. First, I will give you a short introduction to epilepsy. Then I will discuss four ways in which phenomenology can contribute to a better understanding of epilepsy and to better care for people affected by this condition. So what is epilepsy? Epilepsy is a common neurological condition that affects about 1% of the population worldwide. This means that around 50 million people are affected by epilepsy. It affects people of any age and of any socioeconomic background and has many different causes, such as genetic mutations, brain infections, brain tumors, stroke, etc. As such, epilepsy is actually not one single disease, but a sign of an underlying brain dysfunction. Seizures are the hallmark of epilepsy. And seizures can be as rare as one time a year or several per day. In some very severe cases, people can have as many as 100 seizures a day. Seizures are unpredictable and therefore induce anxiety. They consist of a very brief change in brain functioning, a disruption of neuronal firing, and are often visible as altered behavior. Often consciousness is altered or lost, and there can be repetitive movements such as smacking, chewing, muscle spasms in the limbs, and people may be incontinent for urine. People may bite their tongue during a seizure, and actually it's a myth that something should be put in their mouth to prevent this, so please don't do this. Seizures can be really impressive events to witness, and if you happen to be with someone who has a seizure, the most important thing is to make sure they cannot hurt themselves or be hurt, to not try and restrain their movements, and to talk to them to reassure them. It's important to time the seizure and to find emergency services if necessary. Because they can be such impressive events to witness, epilepsy and seizures have been highly stigmatized and still are up to this day. In some cultures, people with epilepsy are thought to be able to communicate with spirits. Statistically, one in 100 people have this condition, so we should all know someone who has epilepsy. 
the fact that most of us do not know of someone with epilepsy shows how difficult it is for people with this condition to disclose it. Aside from seizures, concomitant conditions such as headaches, migraine, sleep disorders, depression and anxiety are common in people with epilepsy. In most cases, epilepsy cannot be cured in the sense that the cause for the seizures is removed. Seizures can, however, be suppressed with anti-seizure medication that work well for about 70 to 80% of people and allows them to lead normal lives. So now I would like to talk about pattern recognition. Because I've been asking myself, what is the difference between a philosopher and a medical doctor? Apart from the fact that a medical doctor can prescribe medication, the main difference is thinking. As philosophers, you are trained in thinking. And I would say that as a medical doctor, I was trained mostly in pattern recognition. I was trained to pick up patterns from a description of symptoms, which will point me to a diagnosis. Every condition has a specific pattern and constellation of signs and symptoms. And the core of my medical training consists in memorizing these patterns. When a patient tells me they have a headache, thanks to my training, a list of possible causes or differential diagnosis, as we call them, pops up in my mind. It could be muscle tension, it could be migraine, or maybe meningitis, or, or brain tumor. So to confirm or refute these, I will ask goal-directed questions. How long has it been there? How intense is it? Where is it located? Is there a fever? Is the patient nauseous? And from this, I will quickly establish the likelihood of what it could be and act accordingly. To diagnose epilepsy, I will ask for a description of the event. When and how often does it happen? And in which context? Ideally, I will ask for a home video or description of the seizure by someone else. This way, there is an account of the seizure that neurologists call semiology. A description of signs, potential triggers, and observable behavior. Seizure semiology is used to understand where in the brain the seizure comes from. In a meaning-making process for the neurologist, the seizure semiology locates the seizure to a specific part of the brain and gives hints of the underlying cause of the epilepsy, which will help choose the appropriate treatment that in most cases is pharmacological. The role of the neurologist is to have a very precise knowledge of the link between specific patterns and brain function. And a skilled neurologist can recognize patterns quickly, understand their biological meaning, and formulate a diagnosis to initiate appropriate treatment. Going beyond semiology, my aim is to show four ways in which phenomenology can contribute to better care for people with epilepsy. The first way in which phenomenology can contribute to care is by sharing alien experiences and giving them meaning. The lived experience is mostly disregarded in medicine, maybe with the exception of psychiatry. Neurologists often ask what and when, but the question, how do you feel, is very aware. So how does it feel to have a seizure? When I started asking this question a few years ago, I was really astonished. 
People told me about anxiety, about premonitory feelings, about hallucinations. One patient told me, the seizure starts with a black thought. Reality is deformed. It's like a nightmare. It's not depressive, but it's, it's really like a nightmare, as if one walks into the woods. It's sunny and suddenly the sun disappears. It becomes dark. It's very frightening. And then I lose energy. I know I need to sit down. I lose my ability to speak and I feel waves of heat coming up. It lasts for a couple of minutes and then it stops. End of quote. Another patient told me my body shaking, the fear in my body. And not just any fear, but fear of death in my body. And after that fear, there is hate, there is destruction. And then come the questions. Why now? Why me? End of quote. Some people were unconscious and some were fully conscious during their seizures. Several people told me that no health professional had ever asked them what it was like to have a seizure. These were experiences that they had never disclosed to people other than maybe their closest friends and relatives. It was as if I had opened a Pandora's box. They wanted to speak about these experiences, but for many, there was also the fear in talking about these experiences. And the fear was of being told they were crazy. The fear of making other people worry about what was happening to them, and above all, the fear of not finding the right words. The experience that people have during seizures are frightening because they can be so strange and so different from the normal consciousness. The perception of the world and of the body changes. Perception of time changes. There is a sense of loss of control. And for some, there's an acute existential fear, the fear of dying in the seizure, of never coming out of it. The more I heard and the more I realized that for some people with epilepsy, every seizure is traumatizing an unpredictable anxiety-inducing event. Talking to people, I discovered that the mere act of talking about their experiences was giving them meaning. This was a different kind of meaning than the biological meaning the neurologist is looking for. Why did this seizure happen when it did? Why was it intense and why did they experience it differently from the other seizures? Finding words for these alien experience and having someone else bearing witness to these experiences in a way seems to help them to reframe the experiences, to put distance between themselves and the experiences. Some people told me that they were grateful for having a seizure just before a meeting we had arranged so that they said they observed the seizure more accurately so that they could tell me about it. This resonates with the field of narrative medicine as described by Rita Charon in 2001. There she writes, in all of medical practice, the narrating of the patient's story is a therapeutically central act because to find the words to contain the disorder and its attendant worries gives shape to and control over the chaos of illness. And a little bit further, she says, listening to stories of illness and recognizing that there are often no clear answers to patients' narrative questions demand the courage and generosity to tolerate and to bear witness to unfair losses and random tragedies. Accomplishing such acts of witnessing 
allows the physician to proceed to his or her more recognizably clinical narrative tasks, to establish a therapeutic alliance, to generate and proceed through a differential diagnosis, to interpret physical findings and laboratory reports correctly, to experience and convey empathy for the patient's experience, and as a result of all of these, to engage the patient in obtaining effective care. The second way that phenomenology can play a role in epilepsy is by acknowledging the reciprocal relationship between emotions and seizures. All neurologists who deal with epilepsy know that there is a link between emotions and seizures. There is empirical evidence that strong emotions may trigger seizures in more than half of people with epilepsy. Conversely, seizures themselves trigger strong emotions. This is not a simple linear causality where emotions trigger seizures and vice versa. Rather, it is really a circular causality as also described by Professor Thomas Fuchs in his work on the ecological brain, where both mutually influence each other. In Thomas Fuchs, in German, Thomas Fuchs calls the brain an Umweltorgan, an organ that mediates between the environment and the person. Understanding the brain this way maybe helps us to understand why emotions, but also apparently external triggers, can cause seizures. Phenomenology allows us to explore and acknowledge the circular causality as indicated by what a patient told me. She said, the seizures happen when I talk or think about something that touches me, even physically. I feel pain around my heart. I feel the feeling that I want to put my hand on it to warm it up. It's not only with negative emotions, but also for positive emotions and also for anger. By talking about a circular causality, people can start to understand their seizures as a dialogue with their body. One of the patients said, I started listening to my body during seizures. I could look at them and see the thoughts and emotions that accompany them. During a seizure, I don't own my body." End of quote. So what would happen if neurologists would start to ask, how do you feel before a seizure? How do you feel during a seizure? Approaching seizures from a phenomenological perspective may reveal the intricate way in which mind and brain are connected. In a dualist or even materialist framework that dominates medicine, it is inconceivable that mental events such as thoughts and emotions could trigger a biological event such as an epileptic seizure with its clear neural correlate. And maybe this is the reason that few neurologists ask these questions. Medical training reduces everything, including thoughts and emotions, to a physical correlate. This creates a blind spot that does not even allow for the possibility that a purely mental event may activate a certain biological brain process. Because of the a priori assumption that a brain governs everything, we stare at the brain, at the little waves on the electroencephalogram, to such an extent that we do not see anything else anymore. Maybe this can be understood in a broader historical context. Electroencephalography, or in short, EEG, is the, measure to, is the method to measure brain activities or brain waves, if you want. It's using electrodes on the scalp and was developed by Hans Berger in 1824, when he was actually looking for proof for telepathy. 
He did not find any evidence for telepathy, but instead showed that the tiny electrical fields that millions of brain cells, also called neurons, produce when they communicate with each other can be measured on the scalp. Before the advent of electroencephalography, epilepsy was seen and treated as a purely mental disorder, the traces of which can still be seen today in the stigma that surround the condition and the fact that specialized epilepsy centers such as Chalfont in the UK or Sein in the Netherlands, which have existed since the 19th century, are usually located in the countryside on the margins of society. With the advent of EEG, it became clear that brain activity was severely disrupted during seizures. Epilepsy became a physical, neurological condition, with the result that mental phenomena associated were pushed to the periphery of the condition. Under no circumstances would we want to give our patients with epilepsy the feeling that they have a mental condition and that we disregard hundreds of years of evidence-based medicine and research that consistently shows a brain correlate of seizures. People with epilepsy told me that they do not tell their treating physicians about subjective experiences surrounding seizures out of fear of not being taken seriously or simply because they realized their physicians were not interested in these features of their condition. Why might physicians not be interested in these aspects of the condition? One possible answer was suggested by John Strauss in 1989. His words were written about mental health and schizophrenia, but maybe they are applicable in the field of epilepsy as well. He writes, with the exception of some clinicians and even fewer researchers, I suggest that we systematically exclude large areas of information from our assessment, classification and understanding of patients. Beyond domination by specific theories, there is another source that probably also prevents our noting patients' experiences fully and accurately. This is the assumption that these experiences must be translated rapidly into biological or psychological explanations, and that just listening, at least for a while, is not sufficient. One common aspect of this problem is our inadequate attention to learning about and understanding patients' competence, skills, and other features of psychological health. And these are areas of information that patients communicate readily or are readily observable if we become open to them. When we can jump to a diagnosis, or a biological, or increasingly rarely, a psychoanalytical explanation, we limit our understanding of the range of the patient's subjective experiences and their implication for understanding psychological phenomena. That's the end of the quote. Could this be why, in epilepsy, subjective experiences are largely ignored? But what if these experiences these phenomena held important information to predict or even interrupt seizures. The third way that phenomenology could contribute to epilepsy is through neurophenomenology and seizure prediction based on lived experience. Seizure prediction has received increasing attention in the last 30 years. On the right side of the slide, you can see the amount of publication publications published in the last 30 years on this topic. Much research has been devoted to trying to predict when a seizure will occur. 
Scientists have been trying to find patterns in the brain signal or in other biological signals, such as the heart rate that signals that a seizure is imminent. The ultimate goal would not be only to warn a person that a seizure may occur and thus to protect them from seizure-related injury, but also somehow to stop a seizure from, hap from happening by altering the brain function at a moment when it becomes more prone to a seizure. Yet despite much effort, to date no such seizure warning system or interruption system exists. How come? In seizures, different phases can be identified. The ictal phase is the seizure itself on the extreme right of the slide. An aura is defined as a subjective experience that are accompanied by a brain correlate and thus are part of the seizure. For example, people with temporal lobe epilepsy often report a rising epigastric sensation, which is neurology speak for a kind of nauseous feeling, probably similar to passing through turbulence in a plane or a ride at a fairground. When looking at a brain signal before seizures, it becomes more challenging. There are usually no signs or patterns visible to the human eye. As such, it is very hard to determine in what state the brain is by only looking at the brain signal. Is it already in a seizure-prone state? The seizure prediction algorithms try to automatically detect these states. But how is that possible when there is no clear demarcation of it? So this is the time between seizures, the time before seizures, and the seizure time, but we don't exactly know. So we know the seizure time, but we don't exactly know when the brain is in a sort of higher uh, seizure-prone state. Here, phenomenology might become crucial. When asked directly, some people with epilepsy report subjective changes even before a seizure or seizure aura occurs. Interestingly, people with epilepsy who have pets sometimes report that pets seem to sense when they will have a seizure. Dogs have been especially trained to recognize seizure warning signs and to help take their owner to a place of security. So something must be happening. The question is how can we access these sometimes very subtle changes? One possibility is through the microphenological interview, sometimes also called the elicitation interview, developed by Pierre Vermeersch and Claire Petit-Mangin. By helping the person to re-experience the event in question, pre-reflective details that had gone unnoticed previously can be brought into awareness and explored in detail. It's a kind of microscope of experience. Petit Mangin and her colleagues conducted such interviews with people with epilepsy in a study published in 2007 and found that prodromal experiences, so before seizures, when there is nothing visible in the EEG, reported by people with epilepsy are indeed subtle. In their sample of nine patients, people reported nervousness, tiredness, and irritability hours and even days before they had a seizure. Using these phenomenological reports, they tried to estimate when the prodromal state started and finished, allowing a more precise analysis of the associated brain state. This is a fine example of the neurophenomenological paradigm that was proposed by Francisco Varela in the 1990s in, as he puts it, a quest to marry modern cognitive science 
and a disciplined approach to human experience in his paper in 1996. The central hypothesis of neurophenomenology is that phenomenological accounts of the structure of experience and their counterparts in cognitive science relate to each other through reciprocal constraints. In this paradigm, both domains have equal status. Correlating the phenomenological accounts with EEG readings, Petit Manger and her colleagues found that the brain showed subtle signs of desynchronization, maybe as a first marker of a transition into a seizure state. So that's, that's what we see on the right-hand side. Their analysis was conducted on a group and further analysis on individual people will be needed to confirm these findings and to develop more rigorous seizure prediction algorithms. I recently started such a study that aims at replicating and extending these findings. My main hypothesis is that through taking the prodromal experiences of people with epilepsy seriously and through helping them to acknowledge and read such subtle phenomena, some people with epilepsy can learn to feel when a seizure may arise, minutes or even hours before it happens. This may help them to protect themselves, for example, by alerting family or friends or by delaying a planned journey. I previously also um, conducted a small study in six people with pharmacoresistant epilepsy, so where medication didn't work to suppress the seizures. And I started to explore whether mindfulness training could support these people to deal with their seizures. I found that in some people, mindfulness training could help to improve the perception of these prodromal states. As many of you probably know, mindfulness meditation is a popular form of mental training, widely implemented in clinical contexts, but stemming from Buddhist meditation. It emphasizes non-judgmental attention on the lived experience. It has some common points with phenomenology. Most notably, both emphasized the study of the structure of lived experience rather than its content. Philosopher Michel Bitbol published a paper in 2019 comparing the practice of mindfulness meditation with the process or the gesture of the epochean reduction. And interestingly, Husserl became aware of Zen Buddhism at the end of his life. And it is claimed that he has said that this is what he was searching for throughout his life. Mindfulness training can thus be seen as a pragmatic way of acquainting oneself with one's own experience, which is why it is so promising in this field. And here we can see the process of what the people with epilepsy learned. And it's especially on the right hand side that this opening to their own bodily sensations accepting them allowed them to sort of get more in touch and more accepting of what was happening. But do we really need to measure brain activity in order to stop seizures? The fourth and final way by which phenomenology could help people with epilepsy is through seizure interruption. I would like to call this empowerment through subjective experience. Recognizing prodromal states does not allow a patient to put themselves in safety in the event of an imminent seizure. It also opens the possibility to develop strategies to interrupt seizures. Donna Andrews is, as far as I know, the first to have developed a structured approach to help people with epilepsy interrupt their seizures. 
through a structured training program of first learning to recognize potential triggers, prodromal states and seizure warning signs, people are progressively invited to take control of their seizures, which is also the name of her book and her program that completely bypasses any neural correlate. Others have since replicated her findings, such as, for example, Michaela Sedol in 2018. In my own small study on mindfulness that I just showed, people naturally started exploring ways in which they could counter their seizures. Some did this by finding a quiet place to sit and breathe deeply, or by focusing strongly on trying to delay a seizure. Others found that through simply being attentive to the experience of the seizure itself, it was easier to bear. Whatever way they found to deal with their seizures, by controlling them or by allowing them to be, they seemed empowered by being able to decide themselves to do or not to do something with the experience. So why do we hear so little about these subjectivity-based approaches in the field of neurology? from meaning-making to seizure interruption. First, there is the blind spot of us physicians. Our brain-centered view does not allow for other experiences to exist. Second, people with epilepsy have been brought up in a way with the same brain-centered view, which I believe actually robs them of their own experience. Because medicine has become increasingly focused on signs and symptoms, people do not trust their own experience with their condition. Opening the conversation, asking people how they feel, may actually empower them to trust their own experience again. Third, in modern medicine, physicians and patients like quick fixes. Physicians have to see many patients a day, and it's easier if through pattern recognition, they can quickly identify the illness in the treatment. For patients, it can sometimes be so much easier if they can just take a pill to cure their illness. Chronic conditions like epilepsy are not that simple. The phenomenological contributions to epilepsy, which I have sketched, require time, patience, and training, not only on the side of the physician, but especially on the side of the patient. The physician is there to support the patient, but ultimately it is the patient who has to do the hard work. The acknowledgement of experience, putting it into word, a constant training to remain aware, to explore, to experiment with what works and what does not work for their own particular condition. This may not be for everyone. And we also have to remember that some people with epilepsy have severe cognitive impairments and may not be capable of learning such things. Yet even for these people, I believe that through working with their loved ones or caregivers, a more experience-based care that empowers them and their family as possible. To summarize, engaging phenomenology in epilepsy can open new options for diagnosis and treatment. Neuro and microphenomenology are two pragmatic ways in which phenomenology can benefit both patients and physicians. The modern version of the Hippocratic Oath states, I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science, and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. Husserl conceived phenomenology as the method that underpins all sciences. 
The phenomenological method allows us to systematically access both sides, art and science, of the medical coin. It allows us to shed light on issues that remain hidden under positivistic approach. Training physicians in medical pattern recognition is not sufficient, and it is vital to train medical doctors in phenomenology. A training in phenomenology can help physicians to learn to listen, to think, to put themselves in their patient's shoes in an empathic way. I would like to close on this picture. People's experiences give meaning to data to take care of people. This is how phenomenology can enrich biological medicine. Phenomenology allows care. Thank you very much.